thank God today. And this is Pastor Adams, the president and founder of Truth Matters Ministries. We're so thankful and delighted that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to join our Truth Matters podcast. And we're so thankful and we take very serious the charge to be custodians and attendants of God's command in Jude 3, that we are to defend the gospel that has once and for all been delivered unto the saints. And today our intent and our desire is to ensure that we provide and equip the body of Christ with materials and information and wisdom where they might be able to represent as a skilled defender the gospel of Jesus Christ within this very wicked and untoward generation in this post-modernistic world. And today, before we go into our teaching for the day, we want to just stop and pause and pray. Now, Father, we thank you today for all things. We give your name glory because you are God. You said in your word that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, your name is to be praised. And we praise you, Lord God, for just even being clothed in our right mind. Our world is going through such a tragic event of COVID-19 contamination. There are so many people that are living in fear. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Stress is overtaking so many people. Careers and finances have been ravished because of this epidemic. So many people are unsure about what they're going to do for tomorrow. Where's my job? Where's my income? How am I going to put food on my table? And Lord, today so many are living under so much pressure. We pray today for those children. We pray for those families. We pray for those marriages that are being texted, that are being impacted and they're being stressed by what's happening in the world. And we pray, Lord, for those persons who are looking to you. They're looking for answers. They're trying to find refuge, trying to find some sibilance of order in what is a very chaotic time. And Lord, we know that there is only one hiding place. There is only one firm foundation, and that foundation is in you. It is in the pillar and the bedrock of your holy word. And we pray today that whoever, Lord God, is standing in need of encouragement, you be the lifter of their heads. That person, Lord, who is unable to sleep, they are insomniac at night. Lord, I pray that you would be, Lord God, their comfort and joy. That person who's alone, who is going into their home and they have somewhat insulated themselves for fear of contracting the COVID-19, you be their company keeper. I thank you, Lord, today that you always are standing by. You're just a prayer away. And the great thing about you, God, is when we call you, we'll never get a busy signal. When we say, Lord, you'll say, here I am. And not just be available, but you also have power to perform and bring about the needs of your people. Lord, we pray today that you would bless this podcast. We pray today that someone would be encouraged, that they'll be uplifted and they'll find hope and they'll find security and they'll build their lives upon that solid rock, which is Christ Jesus. And we thank God for it. Amen and amen. And we're just so thankful today. And before we get into our teaching, we're mindful of the words of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal said, that truth is so obscure in these times and falsehoods are so well established. Blaise Pascal said, if less you love the truth, 
He said, you can't even find it or know it. I'm also mindful of the words that were spoken by Mark Twain. Mark Twain said that lies and falsehoods, they're so prevalent today that they can travel all the way around this big old world before truth can even get its boots on. And I'm mindful of the words of Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the lead prosecutor in the old Scooter Libby trial. Patrick Fitzgerald said that truth is the engine, it's the foundation of our very justice system. And he said that if we don't have truth, we don't have anything. No matter when we go into court proceedings, they tell you to put right hands on Bibles and left hands in the air and to proclaim, I proclaim to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why? Because truth matters today. And over the last few weeks, we've been discussing a very important uh, segment and a very important topic entitled Inerrancy of Scripture. And we discussed in our first podcast on the importance of what is called the bibliographical test. We talked about the bibliographical test. And now we're going to continue in what is called the internal evidence test. And we spoke last week about so many things that validated and proved that the internal evidence of uh, evidence test within the Bible, how can we tell and how can we discern or qualify things that are written within the text? And what does the text or the Bible say about itself that can really qualify and validate its authenticity? We talked about variants last week. We spoke about the Apocrypha and we spoke about what we call pseudo-gospels, such as the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, and the Apocryphal books. And we begin to speak about what is called what is called textual criticism, or how can we validate what are called variants within text. And Josh McDowell, who is the author of a book that's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he said something that I thought was so absolutely fantastic. In his book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he talked about how we can actually find out if a document internally is uh, authentic or valid. He's an evangelical apologist and one of the main persons involved in taking apart what we talked about last week, the mummy mask, has perhaps attracted the most scathing criticisms in a video in which McDowell is filmed taking, he's actually talking to an audience. He presents slides of the work that he had done to extract the papyri or the papyri from the mummy mask. And he explained that when you actually take apart all of the little papyra of the mask, he was sharing that scholars die when they hear how people do it. And he said you begin to take apart the different parts of the mask, and it was such an unorthodox fashion of doing it, the traditional uh, Bible scholar or the traditional archaeologist who handled old ancient manuscripts thought that he was being careless with it. But the very important thing that he did mention is that you can take apart all of the papyra and out of the 40,000 copies of the New Testament that came out of the papyra, he says that his technique had, had wonderfully preserved all of the copies 
of the New Testament. And we're going to talk a little bit about what is called manuscript variants. Now, if you read in Matthew 5 and 18, it says, till heaven and earth pass away. It says not one jot or a tittle will pass away from the law. And I want to just analyze a little bit about what this text means, because there are some who suggest that there won't be one little line, there won't be one word, there won't be one vowel, there won't be one consonant. There will not be any change or any variance from one document to the copy document. But we have to really look and see what that says. Uh, a theologian, Matthew Henry, he comments, he says, Verily I say unto you, I and the Amen, the faithful witness, solemnly declare it, that till heaven and earth pass away, when time shall be no more, and the unchangeable state of recompenses shall supersede all laws, one jot or one tittle, the least and most minute circumstance, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. For what is it that God is doing in all the operations, both of the providence and the grace, but fulfilling the scripture? Heaven and earth shall come together and all the fullness thereof are going to be wrapped up in ruin and confusion rather than any word of God that shall fall to the ground or be in vain. The word of the Lord endures forever, both that and the law and that of the gospel. Observe the care of God concerning his law extends itself even to those things that seem to be at of the least of count in it, the iotas and the little tittles or whatever belongs to God and bears his stamp, be it ever so little shall be preserved. The laws of men are conscious to themselves and of so much imperfection that they allow for a maximum of pieces duris non dura, which means the extreme points of the law are not the law. But God will stand by and maintain every iota and every tittle of his law. Now, let's look at what Matthew Henry was actually saying in his, in his explanation of this particular text in Matthew 5 and 18. He gives it a charge to his disciples to carefully to preserve the law and shows them the danger of the neglect and the contempt of it. In Isaiah 4 and 8, it says, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of God endures forever. It's also spoken again in James 1 and 10 and 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. It is important to note that the text from the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandrinus have been translated into thousands of languages. Consider the King James Version of 16 and 11. In 1611, it has been enhanced by the New King James Version, along with contemporary versions such as the RSV, Revised Standard Version, the American Standard Version, the NIV, the New International Version, and the Amplified Versions. Note that in the 1611 common language, the common word for alive was quick. So if you read uh, the 1611 uh, King James Version, and you read Hebrews, I believe it's in 4 and 12, it says, for the word of God is quick, which means alive. So when you start talking about variance between translations over time, languages evolve. We don't say betwixt anymore. We say between. 
We don't say, I beseech you. We say, I call upon you or I desire that you. So just like alive and quick uh, was a word that was used and evolved, translators made adjustments in words that were the more common equivalent. It must be stated that any student of hermeneutics will attest that interpretation, I want you all to get this, it does require inspiration. It does require discipline of laws and the structure of identifying things such as the author. And we're going to be doing a a very extensive exposition on biblical hermeneutics or the art and science of interpretation. But I'm just going to just share a little bit of it now. You have to understand who is the author of the writing? What is the author's lens or point of viewing in a particular verse? Then the third thing is, what type of scripture is it? Is it historical? Is it literal? Is it prophetic? Is it allegorical or does it fall in the category of fantasy imagery? Then what was the era or the period that the text was written in? And then you must do what is very important. You must synergize the text with the united voice of scripture. There are 31,374 verses in the Bible. And to properly be able to apprehend or comprehend what one verse says, you must also consider the 31,373 other verses to really know what one is saying. It's called synergism. You must interpret scripture by scripture. But the most important principle is what is called context. Context, and again, I say context. Now, when it comes down to translation, it requires an intimate knowledge of the word genre when you're translating. You have to understand historical usages, and most importantly, you must have scholarship. You can't just be a novice or have a general understanding of languages. You have to be a scholar in both of the languages you translate. So if you're translating from Greek into English, you have to be a Greek, not a novice, or a person who has a general idea or have a mediary uh, apprehension of Greek. You have to be a scholar in Greek. And then you have to also be a scholar in the language that you're interpreting into. Why? Because you have to find the equivalent. Now, a Greek scholar in 1611, who was also a Greek scholar in English, English in 1611, they have, may have used the most perfect scholarship based upon that particular time interval. But as languages evolve, such as the example I gave of alive and quick, well, now in the year 2020, we don't say quick to say alive. We say alive. So there has to be consideration that languages evolve and word usages evolve. And I take time to share this is because many people see variants in the Bible and they say, well, the Bible is changed. The Bible doesn't mean the same thing. Look, we got this new international version. We have the, the uh, amplified version and it's different from the King James version. And the new King James version is different from the old King James version. The King James Version in 1611 was different from the Geneva Bible that I believe came out in 1590. So there are so many different variances in languages. And many people, when they see those variants, they suggest that the Bible is not reliable. So when you look at Lee Strobel, 
He is the author of a book called The Case for Christ. He continued in this uh, particular uh, exposition of what is known as understanding variance. He said this, to get to the other side of the story, Lee Strobel, he flew to Dallas to interview Daniel Wallace, who was a professor of New Testament studies at the Dallas Seminary. And he's also the executive director of the Center of the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. On one level, he observed, it seems that Ehrman, who was the one who, uh, Bart Ehrman is the one who actually brought up all of the contentions of saying that Jesus was misquoted and that the Bible has so many variants in it. He spoke of Ehrman. He says, Ehrman has merely told a general audience about the kind of issues that textual critics have grappled with for centuries. That's right. He peeled back the curtain on scholarly work and that revelation alarmed many Christians who weren't equipped to fully understand the issues. This is what Wallace said, and many of you who are listening to this Truth Matters broadcast, if you do have questions or if you do doubt the reliability of a scripture, you probably stand shoulder to shoulder with many uh, persons who question the authenticity. On another level, though, he tries to create a strong doubt as to what the original text said, using more innuendos than substance. Readers end up having far more doubts about, the, about what the Bible says than any textual critic today would ever have. I think Ehrman has simply overstated his case. So Dr. Daniel Wallace, as he began to analyze many of Bart Ehrman's contentions against the Bible being reliable, stating that it has too many variations, he has been found to be overstating his case. So. Uh, Lee Strobel, he asked Wallace about the quantity and the quality of the New Testament manuscripts that scholars possess today. The more copies they have, the easier it is to discern the contents of the originals that have long ago crumbled into the dust. Quite simply, we have more witnesses to the text of the New Testament than to any other ancient Greek or Latin literature. It really is an embarrassment of riches, he said. So we have over 5,700 Greek copies of the New Testament. There is another 10,000 copies in the Latin. Then there are versions in other languages, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, and so on. There is an estimated number of between 10,000 and 15,000. So right, you've got, right there, you've got about 25 to 30,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament. And then I just shared with you on our last podcast that because of the papyrus that were unraveled in all of the mummy masks, there is another 40,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament. Now, if we were to destroy all these manuscripts, we would be left. Would we be left without a witness? He asked. He said, not at all. Listen to this. The ancient church fathers quoted so often from the New Testament. They quoted from it. They, if a person was teaching or preaching and they would just quote the scripture and they would write down in their sermon outlines and they would write down a, a certain teaching or they would be preparing for a Bible study or they would be going through an entire litany of Bible lessons. And just from the quotes that they wrote down in their hands, it says that from those New Testament writings, it would be possible to reconstruct almost the entire 
New Testament from their writings alone. So Dr. Strobel asked Wallace about the dates of the manuscripts. About 10% of the manuscripts come from the first millennium is what Dr. Wallace said. Through the first three centuries, we have nearly 50 manuscripts in Greek alone. So we have to really a, a really small gap between the actual earliest papyrus and the New Testament documents, similar to what we shared earlier when we were comparing the New Testament against writings of antiquity. He said, right there, there's just no comparison to the others. For other great historians, there are 300-year gap up to 1,000-year gaps between when their original document was written and the first copy was made. Somewhere between 70 to 80% of all textual variants are spelling differences. I want you all to write that and make note of that. That can't even be translated into English is what Dr. Wallace said, and they have zero impact on the meaning. So what Bart Ehrman said were variants, and he had said there were 200,000 and 400,000 variants uh, between the, the copies of the New Testament. Well, zero of them have any impact upon the meaning. So you've got... So you got a lot of nonsense errors where a scribe was inattentive and he makes a mistake that is obvious, a no-brainer on the spot, is what Dr. Wallace said. He says there's also variants involving synonyms. Let's look at John 4 and 1. It says, when Jesus knew or when the Lord knew. We're not sure which one goes back to the original, but both words are true. So Bart Ehrman considered that an error when one translation said when Jesus knew and then another copy said the Lord knew. They're both saying the same thing because Jesus is the Lord. He went on to say a lot of variants involve the Greek practice of using a definite article with the proper name, which they don't do in English. So he looked at a Greek translation and he looked at how it was translated in the English well, we don't use definite articles in English. So he considered each one of them a variant. For example, a manuscript might refer to the Mary or the Joseph, but the scribe may have simply just wrote Mary or just wrote Joseph without putting the there. Bart Ehrman called that a variant. And he says that the Bible is an error because of a definite article not being put by a name. And I'm, I'm getting pretty technical here. But see, one thing I know for sure is that the devil is a liar. And the devil will use anything to try to destroy men's confidence in the reliability of God's word. But we're going to put a stop to it today. We're going to stand upon truth. Here it says, on top of that, he says, you, you, you've got variants that can't even be translated into English into English. Greek is a highly inflected language. That means that the order of words in Greek isn't as important as it is in English. For example, there are 16 different ways in Greek to say Jesus loves Paul, and they will be translated into English in the very same way. Still, it counts as a textual variant if there's a difference in the order of the words, even if the meaning is unaffected. So, it's about 200 to 400,000 variants among the Greek manuscripts. And Dr. Wallace said, I'm just shocked that there are so few. What would be the potential number be is what Lee Strobel asked him. He said it would be tens of millions. 
Part of the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts and we're glad that we have so many manuscripts. It helps us immensely to be getting back to the original. So from there, Lee Strobel had asked Dr. Wallace this very important question. He says, how many textual variants really make a difference? He says uh, his response was only about 1% of the variants are both meaningful, which means they affected the meaning of the text in some degree, and viable, which means they have a decent chance of going back to the original text. But most of these are very insignificant. And then Mr. Dr. Strobel asked him to give an example. And the example that he gave him um, was what they consider a notorious issue. It's found in Romans 5 and 1. Did Paul say, we have peace or let us have peace? The difference amounts to one letter in the Greek. Scholars are split on this. But the big point is that neither variant contradicts the teachings of Scripture. But it's still considered a variant. So as we continue in our podcast today, we want to just really get into the meat of this particular segment, and it is this. I don't want to give the impression that scribes didn't ever change a text or the, for theological reasons. So let's just look at what is called uh, one of the variants from the actual scribes. They wanted to make a text more explicit. Through the centuries, for example, the church started using what is called sections of scriptures for daily readings. They're called lectionaries. About 2,200 of our Greek manuscripts are lectionaries. Pay attention here, this is very important where they will just set forth a year's worth of daily or weekly uh, scripture readings. Here's what happened. In the Gospel of Mark, there are about 89 verses in a row where the name of Jesus is not even mentioned once. Now, these pronouncements, uh, uh, you know, these pronouns are used with he referring to Jesus. So, well, if you excerpt the passage for a daily lectionary reading, you can't start with, when he was going someplace, the reader wouldn't know who you were talking about. So instead of putting the word he there, it was logical for the scribe to replace he with Jesus in order to be more specific in the lectionary. But it's counted as a variant on that particular single line. And I don't want to belabor you with this point, but you will find many people who will say, well, hey, this is a little bit different. And in the original Greek, it said Jesus. But right here in this particular translation, in this Greek document, it says he. And they consider it to be an error. But we're just trying to give you some, uh, some semblance of order and explanation as to why there may have been adjustments. And we'll just re repeat a few of them. One, because languages evolve. The second one is because... Uh, there may not have been a definite article. The third one is because the, the scribe may have uh, um, changed the word from Jesus to he because he wanted to make it more understandable for the person who was reading that it was Jesus versus just a he. And then finally, Dr. Wallace says, Ehrman didn't prove that any doctrine is jeopardized. He says, let me repeat the basic thesis that has been argued since 1707. No cardinal or essential doctrine has ever been altered by any textual variant that has plausibility of going back to the original. 
The evidence for that has not changed to this day. So when you start thinking about the inerrancy of scripture, it's very important to understand this. And one thing I know for sure, I looked up a verse that Bart Ehrman had had decided was an error and it was Mark 5 and 23. I personally researched the text and it is clear that the word compassion in Mark 5 and 34 is solidly rooted in the context of the text. The word in Greek for compassion, I really can't pronounce it, but it's splakritsnomai and it's in what is called the middle voice, which means to have bowels or to yearn figuratively to feel sympathy or to have pity or to be moved with compassion. It's the same word that's found in Mark 5 and 34. It's also found in Mark 8 and 2. It's also found in Matthew 14 and 14. Jesus had pity, sympathy, and feelings for those hungry, hurting with their infirmities. And um, Dr. Ehrman has suggested that Jesus was angry versus having compassion in Mark 1 and four, Mark 1 and 41. I want you to just bring that to your attention just in case someone will uh, present that to you. I want to let you know that the Bible is exactly inerrant. And what I want to do with roughly the next five minutes that we have left, I want to talk about archaeology and I want to also share uh, with you some very important things on our next podcast. We're going to be talking about the the archaeological discoveries and the proofs that have confirmed what the Bible has spoken. But I think it's very important that we understand as we continue through what is called an errancy of Scripture that the Bible is true extantly. The bibliographical test affirms the reliability of Scripture. The internal evidence test that we're going through now, it does affirm the reliability of Scripture. And I want you to know today that no matter what, if we take time to read the word, if we take time to rightly divide it, and if we become familiar with not just the written word, but we become intimately involved in the living word who was Christ Jesus, we have to pray, we have to fellowship, we have to become intimate with him. We have to meditate upon him all day. We have to let his word and pray continually be resident in our heart and in our minds. And then as we become more intimately with the living word, the spirit of God will get involved and he will begin to give us insight and he will give us revelation concerning his written word. But we want you to know today in our podcast audience that God's word is true. God's word is real. And out of all the things that I want you to know, there are some things that are priorities in life. There are some things that don't really matter in life. But don't you ever forget that truth, it always matters in this life. Pray for us and God bless you.